Jean Bryce preach from this pulpit during the 1980s. I had the twin joys of serving on his staff and listening to his eloquent and powerful sermons. Last summer, I reread some of his published sermons. In one of those sermons, he told the story of a controversy that embroiled the United States Senate. In 1902, a man named Reed Smoot from Utah was elected to the Senate. Reed Smoot was a Mormon, and although he only had one wife, the church Reed Smoot belonged to still believed in polygamy. Some of the more sanctimonious senators argued that Smoot should not be seated as a senator. The issue was settled when Senator Boise Penrose of Pennsylvania strode to the podium and looked directly out at some of his philandering colleagues. As for me, he said, I would prefer to have seated beside me in the Senate a polygamist who does not polyg than a monogamist who does not monog. <laughs> Dr. Bryce concluded this story by saying that acting right is more important than thinking right or believing right or feeling right. What does it mean then for you and I to act right in the area of sexual ethics today? The story from the floor of the U.S. Senate, well, that predates even women having the right to vote in this country. Whereas today, women serve on the Supreme Court and in the Congress. So much has happened between 1902 and 2018. Like the advent of effective birth control, the legalization of abortion, the Marriage Equality Act, now, back when I was a kid watching a black and white television, Desi and Lucy in the I Love Lucy show slept in separate twin beds. Whereas today, our children have unlimited access to destructive and degrading pornography on their cell phones. It is a confusing world for parents trying to raise healthy children. The culture has not been shy in speaking out on this subject. From Romeo and Juliet to When Harry Met Sally, from Casablanca to Brokeback Mountain, literature and movies bombard us with images of sexual relationships. A few years back, I was working with a team of members here at the church to select a novel that our congregation could read together as a part of the Building Community Book by Book program. And uh, a woman on our committee who had been an English teacher was well-versed in literature, and she suggested to me that she had found the book. It was brand new. She suggested that I run out and get it right away. And I was on my way to Colorado, but I stopped at Rainy Day Books and I picked it up and I could hardly wait to read it. And when I got to Colorado and opened my email, I had a message from this member saying, oh, please forgive me. I'm so sorry for recommending that. On page 40, the obscenity becomes so graphic and there's no way we could ever discuss that book together as a church. And so I flipped to page 40. <laughs> Where is the voice of the church? 
Are we mute in our fear of speaking out on personal issues that might seem controversial? Are we willing to let the culture guide us and teach our children and shape our moral consciousness? Or does our faith get a word? The early Christians were profoundly influenced by Greek philosophy, which taught that the body and the soul were two different things. We continue to discount bodily things today. For example, when someone dies, we say, oh, well, her soul is in heaven, but her body is there in the grave. St. Augustine, who profoundly shaped Christian thought, believed that all matter was evil. This pulpit, this ground, our flesh, anything you could touch, all matter is evil and all spirit is good. And Augustine believed that the Christian life would require him to give up his lustful life, his physical pleasures of enjoying fine wine and anything pertaining to the desires of the body. He famously prayed, God, give me chastity and self-control, but not just yet. Even though you may have never heard of Augustine or studied the Greek philosophers, many of us in this culture have focused our spiritual energies on believing the right things about God, and we have failed to remember that what we do with our physical bodies also matters to God. So oftentimes, we modern folks find that God is absent from our physical lives, we assign God to a place like this, to this sanctuary, but not to the golf course or the boardroom or the operating room or the bedroom. Many folks feel ashamed of their sexual feelings or sad that life has not been for them what the romance novels portrayed. Joy can seem elusive in one's physical expression of intimacy. I am convinced that many of the problems plaguing modern life are rooted in an ill-formed spirituality about sexuality. In the Garden of Eden, God gives the first command, be fruitful and multiply. This comes way before don't eat the apple, and yet many of us suffer from feelings of shame or disgrace, as though we have done something wrong. Many years ago, when I was a singles minister, I got a lot of questions about this topic. And during that time, I discovered a very helpful article by a Christian ethicist named Karen Labax. She argued for a sexual ethic based on mutual vulnerability. And her idea was that any healthy sexual relationship is rooted in both partners being equally vulnerable. To desire another is to become vulnerable. To feel passion leaves us vulnerable to hurt. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were naked, but they were not ashamed. They were mutually vulnerable. In our modern relationships today, if one partner is vulnerable and the other is not, there is a serious problem. When I look at the sexual scandals of today, priests and clergy abusing congregants, for example, I see over and over and over again in these scandals that one person is vulnerable 
and the other has power. Labax writes, any exercise of sexuality that violates appropriate vulnerability is wrong. Today, we have separated human sexuality from God's love through shame, misuse of power, and separating body from spirit. We are a people capable of great love, but we are full of brokenness. We are capable of hurting one another rather than healing one another. With raw disregard for one another's vulnerability, we become lost. Does God have a word? Let's look at Song of Solomon. Tucked into the final pages of the Old Testament is this little book that almost didn't make it into the Bible. It's a romantic, sensual love poem. It begins in the opening verses with kisses and quickly becomes PG-13, if not R-rated. One scholar noted that if folks actually read Song of Solomon, they might ban the Bible from the public library. And if our kids find out it is there, they will be reading it on their phones under their covers at night. Today, I selected some of the verses that felt safe to read aloud in church. Set me as a seal upon your heart, for love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Here, near the end of the poem, the lovers declare that this erotic passion that they share with each other expresses a holy love. Though God is not mentioned in the entire book, the holy presence of the Creator appears to empower the lovers to freely love one another with their bodies. In fact, in the days that this poem was written, the idea that the body and the soul were separate had not even occurred to them. Love is invincible. We are part of one whole love. We are not these broken parts. And this holy love, embodied love, cannot be destroyed even by death. Set me as a seal upon your heart, for love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. For many years, people were uncomfortable with finding these words in the Bible. They didn't know what to make of this erotic poem. And so they explained it away by making it an allegory, saying that it was simply an allegory about how much God loves the human race or how much Christ loves the church. But even if you make of it an allegory, you cannot deny that it celebrates a love that is passionate and whole, desirous, and physical. It says that such love is expressed with our bodies and that this very love is a gift from God, rooted in God's love, empowering us to know the fullness of God's love in our bodies. God loves us as if we were God's very own. We love one another with the same intimacy and vulnerability and same respectful beauty. I remember when my grandmother died. Actually, my biological grandmother died when I was just a tiny infant, and my grandfather quickly remarried, marrying my grandmother's best friend, a schoolteacher who had never before been married. My grandfather was the sheriff. He was tall, broad-shouldered, pretty gruff, and a little quiet, whereas my grandmother, she was a barrel of fun and always laughing and doing girly things with us. 
She and my grandfather would take us fishing and camping and exploring. And at the same time that she could be girly, my grandmother could be kind of a tomboy. She had her own turkey ranch and she raised peacocks as pets. And then one day, this gorgeous, beautiful grandmother of mine was gone, cancer. My grandfather called my sister and I back into his bedroom. He was seated on the edge of the bed, cradling in his hand her eastern star pen. He said, girls, I want to take the stones out of this pen and have rings made for each of you because your grandmother loved you so much. And then he began to cry. And for the first time in my life, I saw a man weeping who had just lost his romantic partner. I saw in his eyes and I heard in his voice that she had been his most intimate love, not just a grandmother raising turkeys, not just a lady who knew how to wear lipstick while fishing, but a woman and a man who had belonged to one another. Sometimes we think that the highest form of love is to give ourselves to God or to sacrifice ourselves for a friend. But what if all love comes from God, even romantic love, the kind we convey bodily? A woman named Stephanie shared her story with the podcast called Modern Love. She was from Texas, but she moved to Syria to live in Damascus while completing a research fellowship. And during her time there in Damascus, she felt the call from God to become a nun. She began visiting a monastery, and there in the chapel, she met a man who was in his third year of becoming a monk. He was in the third year of the novitiate. He was a novice, and while they began to share their stories of being called by God, they began to develop a deep spiritual friendship, and they began to fall in love. He was confused and he didn't know what to do, so he decided to take a trip and go to India to discern whether or not God was calling him to be a celibate monk or a married man. He wanted to hear a word from God away from the pressure of the other priest and away from his beloved Stephanie. While traveling in India, he took off the monk's robes and wore regular street clothes, and he looked everywhere for God to offer him a sign, but nothing happened. Near the end of his trip, he was in Mumbai, boarding a train, taking his seat, when suddenly two nuns wearing long white habits and a young girl boarded the train. He found this unusual in India, and they walked right up to him, saying, Are you going to Cochin? Yes, he said. Well, this girl is seated right next to you. This is her ticket. Can you make sure she gets off at the right place? Will you watch over her? He said, sure, and the two nuns got off the train, and the girl turned to him and said, I have just spent three years as a novitiate, preparing to be a nun, and I have decided to leave and pursue a different life. And he said, me too. And he went home, and he married Stephanie, and both Frederick and Stephanie found that God's call to love each other was no less, no less sacred, no less holy than any other call. They were called to desire one another, to love each other, to mutually care for one another with tenderness and with passion. 
I wonder if this kind of love even has the power to save us, to convey to us that God loves us completely and fully. Maybe God's love can be revealed with our own bodies. Viktor Frankl was living in a concentration camp during World War II. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he writes of being in that camp, malnourished, freezing, marching to the work site. Left, two, three, four, we stumbled on in the darkness over big stones and large puddles. The guards kept shouting at us and driving at us with the butts of their rifles. Frankel was overcome with despair, and he began to think about his wife. He didn't know where she was or if she was still alive, but he could picture her image. He could still hear her voice. He could see her smile encouraging him. And in that moment, he realized that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which a person can aspire. And he understood how a man who has nothing left in this world may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of the beloved. He said that he didn't know where she was or if she was. But at that moment, he had a mental conversation with her that was completely vivid and completely satisfying. And the conversation went like this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, for love is strong as death. 